I have a word for you from the Lord, and I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 13. And those of you who are biblical ninjas can also flip over to 2 Kings, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Matthew, chapter 5, verse 13. 2 Kings, chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. When you get to Matthew 5, say amen. amen. This is what it says. <clears throat> you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Then 2 Kings 2, 19 through 22. The men of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad, and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. Let's pray. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus that you would empower your people to be the salt of the earth. I speak blessing and encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is giving us the Sermon on the Mount. He gives us the Beatitudes. He gives us very powerful teachings. But in the midst of this Sermon on the Mount, he says two things. First, he says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and hide it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And then he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its savor, it's not good for anything. It should be thrown out and trampled under feet by men. Salt and light. Two realities that are to characterize the lives of believers in Jesus Christ. Salt and light. Let me ask you a question. Are you a salty Christian? How salty are you? Have you lost your saltiness? Have you ever been salty? Do you know what it means to be a salty Christian? You are the salt of the earth. The question is not, are you the salt of the earth or not? The question is, are you salty? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the salt of the earth. But are you salty? Or have you lost your savor? Now, there's two things that salt does. First of all, salt preserves. It preserves things. It's a preservative. You salt your fish, it'll last longer. It won't spoil as quickly. Things that are The more salty things are, the longer they last. Salt is a preservative. The second thing salt is is salt adds flavor to things. It spices things up. I mean, man, just try eating meat with no salt. 
You can have a choice piece of meat, but without salt, it ain't got no flavor. You know what I'm talking about? Eat some eggs without salt. That's why I fry my eggs in butter. I infuse the salt right into it. Mm. Can I get a witness? <laughs> that's, why, that's why so many of us got high blood pressure. The problem is that most believers in Jesus Christ aren't salty enough to raise the blood pressure of the world even one point. The interesting thing is that Jesus did not say you are the salt of the church. He said you're the salt of the world, meaning that your saltiness, the test of your saltiness begins the moment the church service is over and you leave. The test of your saltiness is not how you act when you're in the church. And the great problem in our society is not that we don't have salty Christians in the church, but the problem is that we lose our savor the moment we leave the four walls of the church. You can taste the flavor of Christ on believers in the church. By the way, we lift our hands and sing during worship. By the way, we close our eyes and speak in tongues. By the way, we share testimonies with one another. We can feel, we can taste the flavor of Christ. I love hearing testimonies of folks that share what God has done. When a believer comes up and says, I just want to give honor to God, to Passa." <laughs> to the first lady, <laughs> to all the brothers and sisters in the Lord. I want to thank the Lord that this week I was broke, but I found chicken on sale for 17 cents a pound. Hallelujah! <laughs> we know how to be real salty in the church. But how many people can taste the flavor of Christ on you outside of the church? The big problem in America is only 4% of believers share their faith. 4%. 4%. The church is 4% salty. 4%. And even those 4% of believers are not very effective in sharing their faith. Matter of fact, the church in Jesus Christ is so unsalty and unsavory that Christianity in America is decreasing by 18,000 churches a year. Not believers, churches. Whole churches are shutting down. And the problem in America is that Christianity has become overly institutionalized to the extent that it's not the Christians, the members of the church who are being Christian, it's the institution that's being Christian for the believers. Instead of having evangelistic Christians, we have evangelistic services. And if, be, if we go to those evangelistic services, we think we're evangelistic. Instead of having worshiping Christians, we have worship services. And if we go and worship at the service, we think we've worshiped. Instead of having Bible-loving Christians, we have Bible studies. And if we go to the Bible study, we think we studied the Bible. Right? We go to church for discipleship, and we go to church for worship, and we go to church. We don't pray anywhere but at the prayer meeting. And so the institutional activities take the place of our individual activities so that we're actually not being Christians. We're simply going to a Christian institution and participating in Christian activities. But at the end of the day, if something goes wrong with that institution, you walk away from the Lord. 
That's why we have so many people who have walked away from the Lord and abandoned their faith because of something that happened at some institutional church. Talk to people, are you a believer? I used to be, but then I went to the church and the pastor manipulated and abused me and took the offering and bought himself a new car and then ran off with the secretary and I thought, forget this Christian thing. Let me tell you something. If you have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, I don't care if the pastor stands up everybody and slaps the whole church, takes everybody's wallet and takes all the money out of it, runs off with five secretaries and impregnates half the neighborhood. You should simply leave that church, but not walk away from Jesus. I'm talking about your church could go under, but Jesus didn't go under. Your church, and too many people have walked away from Christ because of what happened in some church. And they say, well, there's too many hypocrites in there. And that's why I don't walk with Christ. That don't even make any sense. That don't even make, you rejected Christ because there's hypocrites in some other church. Don't even make sense. But the problem is that we have so wrapped up Christianity in the institutional church that we don't know how to be Christians outside of the church. And because of it, we've lost our savor. The only place we know how to taste the flavor of Christ is in the four walls. And churches have learned that believers will only be believers in the church. And so we simply increase church activities. So since we know that if we don't have a prayer meeting every night, people ain't going to pray, we better have about three or four prayer meetings a week. We better add two or three more midweek services. We better start a morning Bible study. Why? Nobody's going to do it on their own, so we have to come up with an institutional solution for individual problems. There's three basic levels of spiritual development. The first is called observation. Observation is when you first come and you see the way believers act in the presence of God. It can scare you. It can freak you out. I love, I love Valerie's testimony. You know, Val, Valerie was sharing with me just the other day. She, every, I, every time I hear her testimony, it blows me away. She said, first time I came to your church, I thought it was a cult. She said, I thought I had walked up in a cult. She said, y'all were singing, lifting your hands and shaking and speaking in tongues. I thought, oh, Lord, get me out of here. She said, I crept out the back and I called my girlfriend on the phone. I said, girl, come pick me up. I done stumbled into a cult. She said, and while she was on the way, I went back into service. She said, when I went back into service, everybody was at the altar. And pastor, you were laying hands on everybody and speaking in tongues. I thought, oh, Lord, I hope he don't touch me. She said, and you would lay hands over here and I would scoot over here. (laughs) You know, she said, finally, you had worked your way all the way over and backed me into a corner. She said, I looked so scared. You looked at me and said, don't worry. I'm not going to touch you if you don't want me to. I said, good. Don't touch me. (laughs) She said, I went home. My girlfriend came and got me. I thought, thank thank you, Jesus, for getting me out of there because that place is crazy. Those people are crazy. She said, I went home, but all week long, I kept thinking, but those people look so happy. There's no way that many people can be that happy. She said, I had to go back to see if you folks were really that happy. So I came back the next week. She said, and I kept coming to see if y'all were really that happy. She said, I discovered 
my goodness, these people really are this happy. (laughs) Then she accepted Jesus one Sunday. Wait a minute, it gets better. It gets better. She became a fanatic. She said, one Sunday we were praying for each other. You said, everybody turn and pray for somebody. She said, I turned to pray for sister so-and-so. And when I put my hand on her shoulder. Oh, School of World Missions. That's right. She was in a School of World Missions meeting. She said, I turned to pray for somebody. And when I opened my mouth, all of a sudden these strange sounds came out. I said, what is this? And I said, I'm sorry. Let me try that again. They said, it's okay. And I tried to pray again and I couldn't talk English. These strange sounds came out. I said, what is going on? She said, it came on me so strong. I couldn't speak English for the rest of the day. She said, I had to go home and go to sleep. (laughs) It starts with observation. Let's just look at what these crazy people are doing. And these people are out of their minds. But then you go from observation to participation. I love when people are making that shift from observation to participation. You know, we got a couple of young people in the church right now that are from the high school across the street and they've given their lives to Christ. And when I look out and I see them worshiping, you know, I remember when they first came, they would just stand there trying to look hard. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? And now all of a sudden they're worshiping. But you know, when you, when you first start really trying to worship, you feel uncomfortable. It doesn't feel natural. You know, it's like, I remember when my wife and I, you know, we had been friends for five years and then we started dating and there was that transition period in the dating where we were like really in love with each other. You know what I mean? And I remember the first time I called her baby, it just felt so unnatural. I was like, that's sunny. I said, come here, baby. And I went, baby, (laughs) baby, that just felt weird. It's so right, but it's so wrong. You know what I mean? It's like. This is uncomfortable. This is strange. This baby, 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 come here, baby. I felt fake saying it. It just felt like, you know what? If you're, if you're, if you're just beginning to worship and you're saying things like, Lord, I love you or Lord, I worship you. And it feels fake. Just keep going. Just keep going. A lot of believers, they stop because what if I just stop? Oh no, you're Sonny. You know what? Now baby, she's baby. I forgot her name is Sonny sometimes. So tell baby to come over here. I'm, who's baby? I mean, my wife, Sonny. You know, that's baby. That's my baby. That's my baby. It's, it's just natural to call her baby now. You know, if you just keep going, if you just keep worshiping, you're making that transition. You're beginning to participate. If you just try, there was a, there's a brother in the church and I saw him just, you know, lifting up his hands. And I said, man, God's really doing a powerful thing in your life, huh? He said, well, no, not really. I said, what do you mean? I said, I see you lifting your hands and worshiping and praying. He said, well, you know what they say? Fake it till you make it. You know what he was saying? He wasn't saying he was just faking it. What he was saying is, I'm going to give myself to this. I'm not just going to sit here passively. I'm going to try. I want to do what you guys are doing. I want to feel what you're feeling. If I see the person next to me getting into the presence of God, I want to get in the presence of God. I don't want to be left out. So I'm going to reach for it and I'm going to ask for it. And you know what? I'm going to get it. Come on, somebody. But this participation phase, this is where most believers stay. Most believers don't go beyond that. If I can participate in the community of faith, if I can participate in the worship life of the church, if I can participate in the prayer life of the church, if I can participate in the corporate activities of the church, I'm mature. 
And a lot of individuals that we would call mature believers in Jesus Christ have simply matured within the institutional structure of the church. And they look mature, but they're actually not. Why? Because outside of the corporate setting, they can't do any of the stuff that they can do inside. It's participation, but they can only do the stuff as long as they're participating. They haven't yet become the salt of the, of the earth. They're simply the salt of the church. They haven't yet become the light of the world. They're simply the light of the church. They've learned how to be salty within the church, but outside, they got no saltiness whatsoever. They've learned how to be light in the church, but outside, they got no light whatsoever. Absolutely no influence for Christ. And here's a sign that, here's how you can tell whether you're in that category or not. How many of you here have unbelieving non-Christian friends? Raise your hand. And if you don't, you need to get out more. Come on now, you need some sinner friends. You can't hang out with all saved folk. Come on now. If you don't have a single sinner friend, then you've got absolutely no chance of leading anybody to Christ. No chance. No chance. You think coming to Jesus means you should write off everybody in your life who doesn't know Christ? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It means you should cling to them closer than ever before. But here's the problem. This is why we don't know how to be salt in the world. When we try to be salt in the world, it just it's unnatural. Instead, we try to we try to give them some script or some scripted way of of witnessing for Christ. Notice Jesus didn't give his disciples a script. He didn't say when you go into a city, you find somebody and say, do you know the Lord is your personal savior? Are you going to hell? Have you ever sinned? Then you know God is angry with you. Repeat after me. Because that's the only way we know how to do it. It's so unnatural. It's because it's inauthentic. Now, what if every football fan had a script? How many of you are football fans here? How many of you would say that football is in the top of your priorities in life? Okay, I I, I don't mean that in a negative way. I don't mean that in an idolatrous way. Uh, Don't worry, I'm not going to rebuke you for this. I mean, you just love football like... Like football is your love. Like you watch every game, you follow it. You know, you just love football. If you love football, lift your hand. That's awesome. No, I'm just, I'm just marveling at Gina. You know, we got a woman over there. Man, that's all, typically it's a men thing. Football. You know, women, I just love seeing those men destroy each other. You know, <laughs> football is different now than it used to be, you know. But, uh, um, <laughs> we, now, now, if you, are a, if you are a football, let's say you're a football fan, you love football. I mean, you're big on football. You're huge on football. How would you feel if your friend said to you, listen, I know you love football, but I don't. So while you're around me, I'm going to ask you never to speak about football. Don't ever bring it up. Would, would any of your friends say that? Now, if you had a friend for 10 years... And you never mentioned football to him, ever. If he had to answer questions about you for, say, this is your life, and somebody asked him, what is the greatest love of your life? He would not say football. 
Why? You've never mentioned it to him in 10 years. You see where I'm going with this? If you have friends who are unbelievers that you have been in contact with over a period of many years and never mentioned Jesus to them, they don't think he's very important to you. Matter of fact, if somebody asked those friends where Jesus was on your priority list, they'd say, he's pretty low. I mean, he's, he's never even mentioned Jesus to me. You think you're being respectful? You're not being respectful. You're showing him how unimportant Jesus is to you. Now, if you are in love with football and you're a huge football fan, when you talk to your non-football friend friends, you don't give them some script. Have you seen a football game this week? Do you know how important football is? Let me tell you how football can change your life. No, you just exude football. You know, I, you know one of the guys in our church, Eris, he loves football so much. You'll just be in a conversation with him about anything, and somehow he'll bring a football metaphor out of it. I mean, somehow he will work football in there. It just, and it happens naturally. It's authentic. It's not, that's how believers in Jesus Christ should be. It should just naturally, Jesus should just come out and but we're trying to force Jesus into stuff. And that's why people are, er, give you a hand because I know you got an agenda and your agenda is to get me into the Jesus thing. No, how about this? I'm just being a Jesus person. I'm just, I'm just, it just naturally happens. Here's the strategy. When I talk to an unbeliever, I'm constantly praying in the back of my heart, the back of my head, Lord, turn this conversation towards you. Lord, turn this conversation towards you. I don't know how, but I'm trusting you to do it. And you know what? The Lord always does it. But the Lord does it. I don't have to force it. I don't have to make it happen. I was telling in first service about a guy I used to talk to. He was the general manager of a company. And and, uh, we would just chat. And and he would tell me about all of the woes of his company and, and all of the things that were happening. And troubles with employees and troubles he was having with the owner. And I'm just, he would just, just talk. We would just talk. And I'm just listening and, and, and praying in the back of my heart, Lord, turn this conversation. And somehow the Lord would always turn it and we would end up talking about something in the Bible or, or, or you know, and typically he would be the one to, to bring it there. Like the Lord would literally draw his heart so he would bring it up so I wouldn't have to. And I'd find myself in the middle of just an open door, bam, and I'd go and I'd start to share. And I think, God, that was awesome. Lord, you are the man. You know, that was awesome how you did that. The next thing I know, I'd look and tears would be running down his cheeks. And, you know, we would just be having this wonderful time. I remember he came in one time and he said, uh, he said, well, maybe you can pray for my back. So what happened? He said, I threw it out yesterday. I said, sure. You know, I prayed for his back. The Lord healed him right there. Amen. I mean, right there, the Lord healed him. And he goes, hey, there's some magic going on here. Ooh. Yeah, I feel the magic. I feel the magic. Yeah. The next day he came in, the magic's still working. I didn't correct his theology, you know, well, actually it's not magic. Do not associate Jesus with magic. Okay. We're trying to teach theology. See what the church does is we try to, instead of, instead of giving Jesus to the world, we're judging the world for not having Jesus. 
We're correcting their theology. We're trying to correct their behavior. Don't you know you shouldn't be smoking? Why not? He's a sinner. (laughs) Don't play that kind of music around me. I'm a Christian. Why not? He's not a Christian. Translation, I know you're not a Christian, but please act like one when you're around me because it makes me feel better about my faith. I hear believers even testifying. Girl, I was at work last week and the person in the cubicle next to me was playing that Snoop Doggy Dog music. You know what I'm talking about? And I said, excuse me, I'm a Christian. That music offends me. Please turn it off. And she said, oh, I'm sorry. And turned it off. Hallelujah. Yeah, you just destroyed your witness right there. That's what you did. What you just told her is, excuse me, I am so holy and righteous that you defile me just by your very presence. I am disgusted with you because you are filthy and unrighteous and I am righteous and holy and you better recognize when I come in the room. I was talking to somebody one time and we got on the subject. He asked what I did for a living. I told him I was a believer, told him I was a pastor. I said, oh, cool, 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 cool. And he thought he would shock me. He said, well, do you mind if I smoke a cigarette? I said, I don't mind at all. He goes, really? I said, yeah. He said, but I thought you were a Christian. I said, I am a Christian. He goes, well, I thought Christians don't like to smoke. I said, am I smoking? He said, you didn't ask me if I wanted a cigarette. You said you wanted to smoke one. You can smoke 10 if you want. You know, it don't change who I am. He goes, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Me being who I am doesn't change who you are. I said, that's right. I said, you know what? You smoke as many as you want. See, you can smoke 20 of them. You're a sinner. (laughs) I'm never surprised when sinners sin. And my job is not to change the sinful patterns of sinners. My job is to change the sinful patterns of believers. We're so busy trying to get people to buy the field, but they don't know about the pearl of great price. Don't tell people to change their life. Take them to Jesus. Meet Jesus and let him change. I tell him, don't change nothing. I don't want you changing any of your behavior because now I'm starting you off in the flesh. Christianity is not about reforming your own behavior. It's about meeting Jesus and letting him change every part of your life. How do you move from participation to the third level, which is impartation? From observation to participation to impartation. Before I get there, let me tell you why it's so important. In 2 Kings chapter 2, this passage here, 19 and verses 19 through 22, the prophet Elisha, he just got finished seeing his spiritual father off to heaven. Elijah goes up, the mantle falls, he picks up the mantle. And when he goes back into town, he comes into this town, into this city, and when he walks in the gates of the city, The people see him as an opportunity to have a problem solved. You know, if you're really walking close with the Lord, people will see you as an opportunity to get their problems solved. Now, I want to say something about problems. Problems are a good thing. 
And the problem is too many believers are running from problems. You know, I told somebody once, it would be easy to be a man of God if people didn't have so many problems. That's before I realized that people's problems is why I have a job. In any arena of life, your level of success depends upon the number of problems that you solve. Your status in life right now is determined by the number of problems you've solved. So that every problem that you've solved is an open door and a means by which God will promote you. And even in the natural realm, solving problems is the means of promotion. So that if you run from problems and say, why me? God says, I'm trying to promote you, yeah. not kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the problem is we want promotion without paying the price. We want to run from problems and run right in the arms of promotion. You will not. Be able to circumvent problems and arrive at promotion. You will only be promoted through the ability to solve problems. So you better stop running and start facing them square on and saying, me and Jesus are going to get through this one. (laughs) Promotion. I went through something in 2011 where all of a sudden my phone started blowing up and I started getting calls from even pastors of other churches with huge problems. We got problems at our church and we need you to help us. Thinking, why me? Call your own pastor. What are you calling me for? And I found myself in the midst of all of this stuff and all of these big problems. I'm saying, God, why? Why did you give this to me? You know, when when you're in the middle of a big problem, it feels like it can feel like God has cursed you. Like God's abandoned you. I said, Lord, how have I displeased you? You know what the Lord said? He said, I needed a son whom I could trust with this. And I found you. Is that okay with you? I was looking for a son that I could entrust with this. And I looked at her. I said, nope, can't trust that one. But I found you. And I said, I can trust him. He'll handle it. And I get, you know what? Every time God allows a big problem to come across your path, you should take it as a compliment. And here's the key. If you're walking close with the Lord, Even unbelieving friends and family members who will tell you to your face, I don't want nothing to do with that Jesus friend. Yeah, wait till a big problem hits them. They'll call you up and say, listen, I need you to talk to that Jesus about this. I don't believe in him, but I know you do. So maybe if you talk to him. How many of your unbelieving family members and friends call you for prayer? <laughs> Elisha walks in the city and the people go, let's go ask the man of God. Let's bring him our problem. If folks don't bring you their problems, it's because they don't think that you can get through to Jesus. <laughs> let's bring him our problem. So Elisha walks into the town. They come, they say, listen, we got a problem. He said, what's the problem? They said, this is a nice town. It's a beautiful town. Great people live here. The problem is the water is killing folk. And not only is the water killing folk, but the water is making the land unproductive and nothing can grow here. And he says, I got a solution. Bring me a bowl of salt. Bring me some salt. So they bring him a bowl and they fill it with salt. And he said, what's this going to do? He says, take me to the water source. 
They take him up to the spring. He takes the bowl of salt and dumps it in the water. Then he says, this is what the Lord says. I've healed this land. It will no longer cause death or be unproductive. And then he goes on about his business. And guess what happened? That salt healed the waters. And suddenly the, the water stopped killing people. And the land became productive. Why? Because the prophet poured a bowl of salt into something that caused death. You know, when you see a, when you see a place that's being killed, when you see areas where death is spreading across the land, places where there's unproductivity and there's death, you know what God does? He sprinkles salt over it. He says, bring me a bowl of salt. Holy Spirit, bring me a bowl of salt. Now, what is salt? Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. You know what he does? He sprinkles you. He says, I'm going to send some believers in there. Just sprinkle them. One of the earliest visions I ever had was the Lord taking me up in the sky in the palm of his hand and, and closing his hand and then sprinkling me. And I saw granules of salt just falling over the nations. And the Lord said, I'm going to sprinkle you as salt among the nations. Didn't know what that meant. Salt preserves and salt flavors. First of all, God puts you in the place where you are to preserve things there so that his judgment doesn't fall on it. You remember what happened in Genesis chapter 19? God told Abraham, I'm getting ready to destroy the city of Sodom. The wickedness of that city has come as far as I can let it go. I'm going to rain down in fire. I'm going to kill everybody up in that piece. And Abraham remembers that his nephew Lot lives there. And he decides to bargain with God. God will negotiate with you. If it's the right kind of negotiation. And notice there's two things that Abraham did not do in that conversation. Number one, he didn't say, Lord, how could you do this to me after all I've done for you? Don't ever come at God with that garbage. After all you've done for me, I'm God. I don't need nobody to do nothing for me. I got tens of thousands of angels serving me hand and foot, and you did something for me? Second of all, if you compare what you did for me with what I did for you, I gave the life of my son to save you. How many times did I spare your pathetic behind when you didn't even know you were in danger? How many times did I provide for you when you didn't even know you were about to go broke? How many times did I feed you before you even knew that you were about to go hungry and you did something for me? Get out of my face. Notice Abram didn't try that. Secondly, he didn't say, God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. We try that all the time. Lord, if you do this, then I promise I will do this. We'll save it. I don't need it. And we're typically, the exchange is never fair, is it? You know, the exchange is never fair. Somebody said, Lord, if you bless me with a million dollars, I'll tithe. So wait a minute. You want me to give you a million dollars so that you'll give a hundred thousand to my church? How about I just give the million to my church and just cut you out? Why do I need a middleman? (laughs) 
If you do this, I'll do that. Don't make no sense. You know what Abraham did? He appealed to God's own character. He said, God, far be it from you to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And in doing that, what Abraham did was he was looking to see if God was more interested in preserving the righteous than he was in destroying the wicked and where the line was, where the balance was. So he said, how about if there's 50 righteous there? And God said, if I find 50 righteous in Sodom, I won't destroy it for the sake of those 50. Abraham said, oh, great. And then he stopped and think, let's see, Lot, his wife, maybe his kids, maybe, perhaps, maybe their husbands. Okay, that's not 50. Lord, how about 40? <laughs> And he got God all the way down to 10. What he found was that a city with thousands of wicked people and 10 righteous people, that's where the balance was. 10 righteous people in God's eyes was powerful enough to preserve a city filled with thousands of wicked people. 10 righteous, 10 we're able to preserve a whole city. Only problem is God couldn't find 10. He found Lot. And we talked about how Lot's witness in that city was a joke. Lot said to the angels, I can't leave yet. I got to go convince people to leave. The angel said, okay, good. Go ahead. Go ahead. Tell, I want you to bring everybody that you've influenced for, for the Lord in this city. He goes, I'll be right back. And he goes to even to his daughter's husbands, whom he had accepted into his own family. And he said, come out of this city before God destroys this place. And they thought he was telling a joke. They laughed at him to the extent that the angel had to drag him and his wife and his two daughters out of the city before God could judge it. Let me tell you something. You know why God puts you in that company, in that job that you hate? Under that boss that you can't stand, that you're praying for deliverance from all the time. With all of those ungodly co-workers listening to that Snoop Dogg at their cubicles. And using foul language. You know why he puts you there? Because God does not want to destroy the wicked. Instead, he wants to sprinkle the righteous in their assault. And he wants to sprinkle you in there because he believes that if he sprinkles salt in there, it's going to heal those waters and the land will no longer be unproductive. That is, God hears the cry of regions, hears the cries of nations, hears the cries of people crying out for deliverance from oppression, crying out to break the back of poverty. And he simply says, bring me a bowl of salt. And he takes his people and he sprinkles them out in unproductive places and in barren places and in places where there's death and says, you are the salt of the earth. But there's, there's one caveat because in order to be salty in those places, you got to go beyond the state of participation. Remember we said there's observation and then participation because what tends to happen is believers will go even to foreign countries And build a church. But we're still only salty in that church. 
He wants to take us beyond participation. And this is for every believer, not just for the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Is it just me or is it hotter than Gehenna in here? Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Lord, that's how to get people saved. Just turn the heat up real hot and then start preaching on hell. <laughs> when I was growing up in the Church of God in Christ, they didn't have no AC. You just had those fans. You know what I'm talking about? Them fans that they pass out at the door. Picture of the pastor on it. Mm, we need to make those. <laughs> focus, people, focus. <laughs> you got to go beyond participation. God wants to take you to the place that I call in, integ- I, that, call, that I call impartation. From observation to participation to impartation. When you come into the place that I call impartation. It means that you have a self-perpetuated, spiritually disciplined, living relationship with Jesus Christ that is not dependent upon an institution. It means that you could go to church on Sunday and find the whole church in an orgy. And you will not walk away from the Lord. You'll simply find another church. It means you can walk. And you know what? I see it happening all the time. I I know right now a pastor who went through a bad situation in his church and his church fell apart and shut down. When his church fell apart, he stopped going to church. And he backslid in his relationship with Jesus Christ. The pastor. Even the past, even many pastors relationship with Christ is wrapped up in what happens with an institution. And God wants to take you to a place. And and you know what? That's where I said. A sad commentary is when believers, by and large, go on vacation, they don't worship. They take a vacation from God. (laughs) That's why I love Revelation chapter 1. John is on a prison island for his faith, and he's the only believer there. What did he say? He said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What does that mean? He said, I looked around and there were no believers, but that wasn't going to stop me from going to church. He said, I got up on Sunday morning. I said, it's time to worship Jesus, but there's no church here. He says, no, 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 no. I am the church. He said, I got my Bible under my arm and I put on my nicest robe and I went outside and I went into the spirit and I began to worship. Listen, I don't care where I am. I'm going to worship Jesus. I don't care where you put me. I can be in prison. I can be on the other side of the world. When you come into that place of impartation, first and foremost, you are so sold out for Jesus that your walk with him is not dependent. And there's so many people making excuses. Well, nobody's encouraging me and nobody's teaching me and nobody's and nobody's and nobody cares what I'm going through. And nobody called me when I disappeared for six months and nobody cared. And everybody's a hypocrite and nobody's helping me when I'm broke. Nobody, 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 nobody. Shut up! Remember when Jesus went into the pools of Bethesda? And he walks up to the man and says, do you want to be made whole? What did he say? Well, I have nobody. 
I don't have anybody. There's nobody here for me. And every time the waters get stirred, everybody else has a family member there to throw them into the pool, but nobody's here for me. Just, I'm not, I didn't ask you for a sob story. I'm here to give you an opportunity. Save the sob story. Jesus is standing in front of you right now. Listen, regardless of what you've been through, regardless of what you will ever go through, Jesus is standing in front of you right now. And if your mother and father forsakes you, Jesus will be standing in front of you right now. And if the church falls apart, even if the pastor falls into sin, listen, your relationship with Christ is not dependent upon me. God wants to raise up a generation of believers who are believers to the bone. I'm sick and tired of this skin deep Christianity. You scratch a believer and you find a sinner under there. We put on a Christian mask when we come to church and we take it off when we walk out. I'm telling you, I want a, I want Christian, I want a Christianity that's, that goes to the bone. I'm talking about you can cut me open and you'll find Christ under there. I'm talking about you go down to my marrow and you'll find Christ in there. I'm talking about if you kill me and cut me in half, Christ will come out. The, the prophet Elisha, when he died and they threw him in the grave, they threw another dead man on top of him. There was enough anointing on that dead prophet's bones. You're the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth and your saltiness, your ministry of salt begins the moment you walk out of these doors. I'm glad you enjoyed the service, but your ministry of salt hasn't started yet. I'm glad you got the Holy Ghost today, but your ministry of salt hasn't started yet. I'm glad you got your dance on. I'm glad you spoke in tongues, but your ministry of salt hasn't started yet. You, you become the salt of the earth the moment you walk out of the four walls of the church. The moment you leave this place, you got to drive out of here with salt consciousness. Yeah, 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 yeah. you got to drive out of here with it in your mind and in your heart. It's time to be salt. I got the word. Now it's time to be salt. I got the spirit. Now it's time to be salt. I had a great time in worship. Now it's time to be salt. Lord. Lord, make me salt. And when you run into unbelievers on the street, cry out, Lord, make me salt. And when you talk to your unsafe friends and family members on the phone, in the back of your head, you're crying out, Lord, make me salt. And you know what? Even if you do it wrong, even if you make mistakes, even if you mess up, I don't care. I'm going to get up again and say, now, Lord, make me salt. Make me salt. Make me salt. When you come to that place of impartation, God can pick you up and drop you on the other side of the world in a country where there's not a single believer in Jesus Christ in the whole country, and you will create, not only will you do all of the stuff that you do in the church here, you will continue to worship, you'll continue to pray, you'll continue to study the word. Believers leave in churches because they're not being fed. You got 18 versions of the Bible in, at, your, at your house, including that big, white, legalistic, pharisaical King James Version on your coffee table. <laughs> a big hypocrite Bible. <laughs> call, it, call it the new hypocrite translation. You know what I mean? You got 15 versions and just go stay in a hotel. You got a Bible, even in the hotel, in a drawer next to you. Ain't no excuse for not being fed. Close your eyes and talk to Jesus. Now you're being fed. Open your Bible and read. Now you're being fed. If you're not, if you're not being fed, you're too old to be fed. You know what? I feed my daughter now with a spoon. But, you know, even her at two and a half, she's learning to feed herself. 
I push the bowl in front of her and she eats. If you're not being fed and you've been in the church for 15 years. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Hallelujah. I'm just the most encouraging preacher you've ever heard. I just build you up and just encourage you. You just come out feeling so good about yourself. (laughs) This is not some motivational talk. This is not a pep talk. This is not Tim Robbins, uh, you know. No, 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 no. We got something far better. We got the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is the power of God under the salvation of all who believe. When you come to that place of impartation, God can pick you up and drop you in the worst of circumstances. And when when you get there, I want you to look around. You say, it looks like a barren wilderness here. It's time to be salt. Looks like everything's dead. It's time to be salt. I told you, Abraham in Genesis 13. Lot looked to the left and saw that the the plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord. He said, I'm going to go over there where it looks nice. Abraham looked to the right and saw that it was a barren desert. And he says, me and the blessing are going to go over here and make it look nice. Because listen... Because listen, I don't go to a place because of the way it looks. It looks good because I went there. I didn't go there because it looked good. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And we're getting ready to close this service. And your ministry of salt is about to begin. Let's bow our heads. First of all, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Maybe there's some of you here that are still at the observation place. See, I've been watching these crazy Christians. I don't understand a lot of what I'm seeing. Maybe you don't even like a lot of what you're seeing, but you sense that there's something real there. First of all, I want to give you an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I want to give you an opportunity to make a decision. Say, I want Jesus in my life. You know, we had a young man this week on Thursday night. He came to our church first about five or six months ago and His father brought him here in the middle of the week and said, Pastor, would you talk to my son? And I sat down at the table and he was so filled with confusion. And I couldn't convince him of the truth of the the gospel. He just wasn't ready. But you know what? He kept coming. His father kept bringing him back again and again and again, week after week after week. Well, this Thursday night, his father grabbed one of our staff members, Robin Veray, and said, my son's ready now. Robin sat down at the table with him and talked to him for about 30 or 45 minutes, and their stories were almost identical. Robin said, 10 years ago, that you, I was you. I had all of the same hang-ups, all of the same confusions, all of the same misunderstandings. But this is what the Lord did for me, and he shared his testimony. And it set that young man free. And he said, do you want to invite Jesus to come into your heart? And that young man said, yes, yes, I do. Robin led him in prayer. And that young man made a decision to invite Jesus to come into his life. This morning in the first service, he was here. He still doesn't know what to do during worship. That's okay. But I called him up. Him and his father came up. I said, this young man made a decision on Thursday to ask Jesus to become his Lord and Savior. And everybody began to rejoice and he broke and just began to weep. He felt the love of the body. Had the brothers come around him and pray. And the Spirit of God just began to rest on that young man's life. And he hugged me, and he wept, and he said, thank you so much. He said, my life will never be the same again. 
You know, it never ceases to amaze me to see this simple thing, simple truth, that Jesus, he saves. Jesus saves. Jesus is the answer. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you're ready. You're ready to turn your heart and your mind to him and say, Jesus, would you come in? Would you take my life? You may be thinking this morning, well, I don't know what to do next. And I don't want you to worry about that because we're here for you. We're here to surround you and embrace you. We're going to walk with you. If you make that decision, we're going to walk with you and we're going to help you see this thing through. We're going to stand with you and help you become strong. It's going to be a journey. Things aren't going to change overnight, but you know what? I guarantee you'll look back a month, two months, six months down the road and see that Jesus has radically changed your life. But it just started with a decision. I have decided to follow Jesus. I want you to know today that he died for your sins. I want you to know today that he loves you. And he's reaching for you. If our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to ask. There's somebody here today you say, I'm ready to invite Jesus to come into my life, to be my Lord and Savior. I'm ready to surrender my life to him. And to ask him to take from me that which I can't surrender. I'm ready. If that's you, lift your hand where you are. I'm going to pray for you this morning. And I believe God's going to change your life. I see that hand right there. Somebody else. You say, I'm ready. Is anybody else here? You say, I'm ready. Hallelujah. It's the most powerful thing. The Bible says every angel in heaven rejoices. I think I saw a hand back there. Was that a hand back there? Yes. There's another hand right there. This is so powerful. Every angel in heaven rejoices. I'm going to come over here and pray with you three. Is that all right? You don't have to move. Powerful. It's a powerful moment. It's a life-changing moment. First of all, the Lord wants you to know that he loves you. He loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. And he's been with you every moment of your life. He's just been waiting for this moment for you to embrace his presence. And he's going to come flooding into your heart. And he's going to fill you with this love. Everybody, I want you all to join me in this prayer. And we're going to join you in prayer right now and ask Jesus simply to come into your heart. That's all it takes. Everything else, it'll just happen naturally from there. We're going to walk with you. Just repeat after me and everybody repeat. We're going to pray together. Say, Jesus, I come to you today. I invite you to come into my heart to save me, to cleanse me, to heal me. Jesus, I need your love. I recognize that now. I need your presence. I recognize that. And I thank you that you love me. I believe that you love me. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you're here for me today. 
I accept you. I embrace you. I receive you. Come in and walk with me and teach me how to walk with you. Thank you that I'll never be the same again. 